This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Jenny Hocking, welcome to Better Reading. Thanks for having me, Cheryl. Yeah, I'm super excited actually about our conversation. Jenny is an award-winning biographer. She's also a professor and a political commentator. She is the author of the acclaimed two-volume biography of Gough Whitlam called Gough Whitlam, A Moment in History, and Gough Whitlam, His Time. Winner of the Fellowship of Australian Writers, the Barbara Ramsden Award, and shortlisted for several awards, including the Prime Minister's Literary Award and the National Biography Award. In 2016, Jenny commenced proceedings in the Federal Court of Australia against the National Archives of Australia, seeking the release of secret correspondence between the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr, and the Queen regarding the dismissal of the Whitlam government. This is her latest book. It's called The Palace Letters. It's about this case and the history behind the letters. Truly, this case, will this incident, this constitutional crisis has never left us, has it? It certainly hasn't. And today, in fact, is 45 years to the day since that tumultuous time and the removal of an elected government by the Governor-General. Never happened before or since. And I think, Cheryl, the reason we're still talking about it and still animated about it is simply because we haven't known the full story. There's been a great deal of secrecy, deception at the time, obviously, of the Prime Minister and others, but most worrying to me has been the way the history's been withheld from us. And, you know, as a historian, the original documentation is everything. You you learn from that, you recast the history from that. And really this book, I see it as a bit of an archival journey as well as a as well as a court case and as well, of course, as the great success of that case and gaining access to the letters. So um, I, I just am delighted that the book, The Palace Letters, has been able to come out, be released and to tell that story because I think it's it's one in which so many Australians got behind me and I'm enormously grateful for that. Yeah, definitely. Um, before we get started, uh, we do have um, quite a few international listeners. So can you give me a little bit of, of background on the dismissal and how it came that you started working on getting access to these letters? Well, the dismissal, as I said, was 45 years ago today. The uh, government of uh, the Labor Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam, had been in office for nearly three years. It had been re-elected the previous year in 1974. So it was actually just barely 18 months into its second term in office. The uh, the government's supply bills, as they're called, the money bills, were stalled in the Senate. It's important to know they weren't blocked, they weren't denied in the Senate. There actually hadn't been a vote on it. They'd been returned to the House of Representatives demanding an election, which was the Prime Minister's view was that that was preposterous and uh, he intended to call instead what's called a half-Senate election. That is an election for half of our Senate That's what he was to do on the 11th of November 1975 when, without warning, completely by surprise, 
the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr, instead dismissed the Prime Minister as, and his entire government and, most remarkably, placed in office as Prime Minister the leader of the party which had lost the previous two elections. Mm. So the critical thing in terms of the great controversy over this for international listeners is that we had then a government that had no command of the House of Representatives, that did not have the competence of the House, and, in fact, the House voted against that government that afternoon and, again, the Governor-General refused to accept that, refused to hear the Speaker of the House and continued to an election with the Leader of the Opposition as Prime Minister. So you can understand, I think, why this is still a convulsive moment in our time and why people are still writing books about it. And I, this is, I think, my largely my fourth book in the general area because there's a two-volume biography, as you said, on Whitlam and there's also a book called The Dismissal Dossier, Everything You Were Never Meant to Know About November 1975 and now, of course, The Palace Letters. So, as I said, it's a rich field because there's so much that keeps coming out about that time. But also it's a defining moment in our history. Like what kind of people could we have been if this hadn't happened? That's the other side of it. And you're right. I think, Cheryl, that's the side that really uh, underlies people's anguish, which which mm. was there at the time and which has continued for many people because the Whitlam government was a very, very reforming government. That's right. Whitlam himself always said he was a, a proud reformist, someone who had a, a detailed um, blueprint for the future of Australia and who succeeded in, in, in having many, many of those things passed. I mean, many of the things we take for granted in modern Australia, for example, um, free healthcare, you know, universal health insurance, aren't we just so grateful everywhere in the world to see what a bon bonus that has been for us as we work through this dreadful pandemic. But Whitlam instituted that against the greatest odds, the greatest uh, obstruction. Uh, he introduced one vote, one value, which again, seeing the American system and, and the gerrymander there, it's been so critical to know that we have electorate sizes within plus or minus 10%. That was a Whitlam initiative. Uh, votes for 18-year-olds previously, you'd have you had, uh, votes were only from 21 years old. Um, he released uh, people who'd been locked in prison, in prison for more than two years for refusing to fight in the Vietnam War. So it's a government animated by a sense of encouraging opportunity for all. He spent an enormous amount on education. Tertiary education was made free. So quite vast changes, despite the enormous obstacles he faced in the parliament, which eventually, of course, is what led to the obstruction of his budget bills. Mm. I want to talk generally about conservatism. I mean, he came into power after 23 years of conservative government, and I can't help thinking about what's happening today in the US. It seems to me that very often conservatives are sore losers. Oh, that's a very polite way of putting it, I think. But you're right. Look, absolutely. I've, I've always pointed to that fact of the 23 years of conservative government as being an immense obstacle for the Whitlam government because what it meant was 23 years of unbroken conservative rule in this country, most of the post-war period. It meant that all of the institutions of governance, all of the expectations about what government would be, which was basically not very much because we hadn't had a very activist government previously, but also the relations between the arms of government, you know, the sort of interconnectedness between the High Court, uh, the government, uh, uh, the closeness, for example, to, to Buckingham Palace in particular, we went back to having a much closer relationship 
um, uh, through Prime Minister Menzies um, in, in that immediate uh, period before Menzies left office. And so it was it was a rapture to elect the Whitlam government on so many levels. And I think many within the public service struggled to keep up with the government, struggled to adapt to, to new ways of doing things. But that also led to this constant claim that the government was doing the wrong thing. It was somehow seen as illegitimate. And the opposition being very, very sore losers and having to take their place on the opposition benches for the first time in 23 years repeatedly claimed that, again, very similar to today, that, that the government had was not a legitimate government. Mm. Um, it was actually described by their key Senate uh, member, Reg Withers, that it was the result of the temporary insanity of the Australian electorate. Mm. And, that, and that shocking disregard for the outcome and disrespect for the outcome, I think, underlay the great difficulties that the Whitlam government then faced. Before we go on to talk about our country, I'm just wondering if you got any tips or any warnings for, say, American historians at this time, because uh, they're going through a constitutional crisis, I'd imagine. Is there any any tips you can give people in terms of making sure that we hold our own, if you like? I think in all these things, in all contested histories in particular, I will repeat the words of Gough Whitlam in a wonderful speech he gave to graduate students when he was in his, I think, in his late 80s, early 90s. It was a, was a, was a scintillating speech and it was called Go to the Documents. Mm. And he said, do not rely on the second-hand, third-hand, fourth-hand accounts of the period when it is contested. And this I know from my own journey and, and love of archival research is absolutely critical go to the original documents and see what they tell you. And very often I've found, even going back to contemporaneous newspaper sources, how surprised I've been at the difference in the representation of that time on the ground at the very time compared to how it came to be interpreted. So I can't stress that enough. I mean, there's a wonderful, of course, well-known quote from Robert Caro, the, the, the brilliant um, American journalist and biographer and he says turn I, I, turn every page and as I say in my book about this journey mine became open every file because within the archives that's where the secrets are that's where so many of these stories are and the issue of course with the palace letters was that we couldn't get them we knew they were there but also there is the interpretation of what you read as well because i noted just in the media that paul kelly was perhaps not agreeing with you on some matters at the moment oh absolutely and yeah. and you know that's what you want the letters out there for but you don't want them to be misinterpreted and and right. i think uh, we need to be very clear that that the argument we put as scholars um, and of course paul kelly is a news corporation journalist and he has a very different view of this but as a scholar my view through all of this material has been to read it in its context to go back to the documents and to rely on what the documents tell you mm. the history of the dismissal has been too fraught too incomplete and too flawed to continue to interpret it erroneously and now that we have I wouldn't suggest for a moment all of the documents because things keep coming in that are unexpected such as these letters it's really important to stick to what the documents tell you. Mm -hmm. So form for me and for, for our listeners, the kind of man that Gough Whitlam was. So you, you must have met him a few times over the years. I did. I met him when I was working on the book. I've actually written three biographies and this was the first time 
I was able to meet the subject of the biographer biography while they were obviously while they were alive. The other the other works I did on Lionel Murphy, who was a High Court Justice and also Attorney General in the Whitlam government, and Frank Hardy, the Australian author, um, both of whom had died by the time I wrote my my biographies of them. But Whitlam I met, I had the great benefit of doing several very long interviews with him and with Margaret Whitlam, his, his wife, um, a delightful person in, and, and a very strong individual. Larger than life characters. Absolutely. Both of them larger yeah. than life. And that gave, I think, for me, an added insight into Whitlam that, you know, it's really interesting for me to reflect on how that differs from writing a biography of someone, firstly, that you've never met, as was was the case for Lionel Murphy, or that I had met, as I had met Frank Hardy, but who had died by the time I worked on a biography of him. So I I think it was a great benefit to be able to have Whitlam's own voice at times through his interviews. We had a very clear understanding early on that this was my book and he did not see the book either volume until they were completed, didn't see, in fact, the second volume until it was published because he'd been very unwell. And and I was grateful that we, um, there was never any question about that. And I was also grateful I'd already written two biographies because I knew how important that was for me. I'm not the sort of scholar that can write a book that is second-guessed by anybody else. It's just not going to work that way. So, look, the book, I enjoyed it immensely. That's where I first really delved into the archives about the dismissal, but also about the government, of course. There's enormous numbers of archival materials coming into the open access period after 30 years. And so there was a lot of material that hadn't been looked at before. But he is a man, for instance, Gough Whitlam as the man, as the Prime Minister, as the politician. Just a little bit of a sense of a description of, of what the view that you came away with. He was a man of immense vision, no doubt about that. Extraordinary energy. And I think a lot of politicians who are successful at that level must have that remarkable degree of energy to keep uh, going through extraordinarily long hours and, and seek to do things. But primarily he was someone who had a very clear plan for action. He saw politics as about coming into government and achieving things in government. It's why many in his own party, in the Labor Party, accused him of being a pragmatist because he always said, well, there's no point being in office, being in parliament, if you can't get into office and therefore get things done because if you don't get into office, you'll never get anything done. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of schisms in the Labor Party that he had to fight to overcome uh, during the 1960s. He actually came into parliament in the early 1950s and as leader for the best part of 10 years, he worked tirelessly at rebuilding the Labor Party platform and, as he called it, making it electable. So he came into government with a huge blueprint for office. One thing that's really interesting to me as a to look on Whitlam as an individual is he had a great sense of humour and he also had a cutting sense of humour. He was extraordinarily intelligent, extraordinarily well-read, proud of showing off just how intelligent, well-read he was and would often you know, in a sense, belittle and demean people, I think, if, if, if they crossed him. And yet that explosive temper, as several of his contemporaries described to me in fascinating detail, was such that he would explode, walk out the door and move on. And he never thought about it again. And meanwhile, leaving somebody who might be fairly devastated by what had just happened. And it wasn't a good way to make friends in, in Parliament. But um, the other thing, there's an edge to Whitlam that I realised the longer I worked on the book, 
And it sounds strange, but uh, others have agreed with this assessment that there's a strange almost political naivety in terms of managing individuals. And many people would suggest that that might be why the personage of Sir John Kerr caught him totally off guard. He was not a good people manager. He'd actually had a fairly sheltered upbringing and one in which the church was actually very prominent. And I found that early years of Whitlam looking into the Baptist church background fascinating. I actually found out that his grandfather had been in Cambridge prison for four years for, for forgery at the age of 19. So, um, you know, really interesting background, which gave the lie to the suggestion that Gough Whitman was a silver tail. Heaven forbid his, gra- his, his grandfather, after whom he was named, was a, was a youthful criminal. Um, <laughs> and really, you see the importance of education, as he then noted to me himself when I had to tell him that fact, that most unfortunate fact. And he said, isn't it interesting that in a single generation, my family moved from one side of the law to the other. <laughs> because Do you know what I think? I think with great minds like his, and, you know, they're legendary characters, they don't become prime minister, you know, for no reason. They've got charisma, they've got intelligence, they've got intellect. But he particularly, I think, they have a vision and they're so... Uh, it's kind of like an intellectual autism that, you know, that's what they're going to do and they don't get involved or they don't sweat the small stuff. So, you know, office politics. And I could see that that John Kerr would have thrown him completely because it wouldn't be the way that his mind was working. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. he was extraordinarily shocked and in complete disbelief. Because he would never do that. I mean, that is just not something that he would understand. Well, it comes to, I think the other side of Whitlam as a political person, and that is his great belief in the institutions. Um, And he always said that, you know, his his greatest belief was in the the, the institutions of the United Nations and their associated institutions, the international world order, uh, parliament, political parties, and, of course, what he called the great Australian Labor Party. So there's a sort of cascading funnel of institutional support that drove everything Whitlam did. His own father had been a Commonwealth Crown solicitor. So, you know, he, he grew up in Canberra knowing and understanding the political institutions and, and believing that people understood mm. the relationships between them, the necessary respect between them. He described that time in Sir John Kerr's office when Kerr handed him the letter of dismissal exactly 45 years ago today. Um, it's one o'clock now, so around about this time. He described it to me as the greatest shock he had ever experienced. Mm. And that's how he was completely caught off guard because Kerr had led him to believe that he could never and would never exercise the reserve powers. He had not warned Whitlam, which was his duty. And why would you even think that that was going to happen? You just. Yes, yes. Particularly when the Prime Minister has formal advice to hold the half Senate election, which is perfectly yeah. proper advice, it was due at that time, and which Kerr knew and had agreed to over the previous four days. No, Kerr ambushed him. He was, it's a totally discreditable action to deceive the Prime Minister. And I don't think there's anyone now in Australia knowing the extent of that deception who would any longer try and argue that that was an acceptable course of action. I, and I don't want to talk about Trump, but I'm just going to reference this. A few years ago at one of the Sydney Writers' Festivals, I well, at the Sydney Writers' Festival, I interviewed a, uh, an American author called George Saunders and Trump had just come into play. That was back then, four years ago then. And I said to him, you know, how are you feeling? What does our future look like? And George Saunders said, I trust the system. Mm. And it's fundamental to trust the system. Mm. Um, I actually was interviewed the other day about a similar 
point. And, I, and, I, and to me, one of the things I expressed was concern about whether Trump's dreadful excesses of language, his claims of fraud, his claims mm. of the election being stolen mm. and so on, his refusal to concede, have actually rent that fabric of the system. I think that's a really pivotal long-term question because people have to have faith in the system. They yeah, well, that, that takes me back to what you were saying about, you know, Gough Whitlam. Oh, absolutely. And, and if the and people her broke, this, broke the oh, system. That's right. Don't uh, no longer trust the system. Then mm. what are you left with? You know, we have to believe that the system works. So I'm terribly concerned that Trump's language is actually making his supporters and possibly others now distrust the system, mm. believe that it is flawed, believe that it's rigged, et cetera, all of, all of the things Trump has been saying. Because once you once you cut that away, you've really undermined the political process itself and that's an immense... A, it is. It's a dangerous place to be. How long do you think it took Australia to recover? Oh, the upheaval was for years, and I think we're still dealing with it in mm. a sense, as, as we can see, but it's become more a sort of historical interest than one that really, I think, it causes in, immense anguish as it once did. But it's interesting through the palace letters to look at the reaction of Kerr himself and of the Queen through her private secretary, both of whom express great surprise, if not shock, that the enormous demonstrations against Kerr continued for more than a year. Kerr had tried to cajole the palace into believing that he describes it at one point as this is rent a crowd, you know, it's the usual people, this will go away. There might be a couple of hundred people there. Actually, the crowds were massive. Kerr could not go anywhere without crowds, demonstrations, eggs, paint bombs. It was it was a shocking reflection on the monarchy. It came to reflect badly on the monarchy. It's interesting that the very last letter the Queen sends Kerr through her private secretary, ends with, with the words, knowing that Kerr is concerned that whatever action he takes, which, let's face it, they all knew was dismissal because they'd been speaking about dissolution and placing the opposition in instead of the government, uh, any, that he was concerned that whatever action he took may bear uh, badly on the monarchy, may reflect badly on the monarchy. And Charteris, the Queen's private secretary, writes back to him and says, if you do as you must and follow what the Constitution says. You should not be concerned about it doing the monarchy any harm. In fact, the chances are it can only do it good. Mm. These are not neutral words from the Queen's private secretary. Those who say that there is no involvement simply choose to ignore the letters that show that there was. And I think it's time after 45 years and such a struggle to get these letters that we reflect on them accurately. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Before we get onto the letters, tell us a little bit about John Kerr and the type of person he was and what the motive was. He was not, it has to be said, a trustworthy person. Mm. He had taken this position as the current, his previous position before he was appointed Governor-General was the Chief Justice of the New South Wales Supreme Court. He'd not been long in that position, a little more than a year, when he started the negotiations with Whitlam that eventually had him appointed. And he was actually, I should say, about Whitlam's fifth choice. He was not Gough Whitlam's first choice. Whitlam really wanted Sir Paul Hasluck, the then current Governor-General, to continue, which is really interesting because Hasluck was a former Liberal senior minister, and yet he and Whitlam got on terrifically in terms of the institutions. Hmm. They respected each other. Mm. Trusted the system, yeah. That's right. They spoke to each other. Uh, Whereas Kerr very early on makes it clear to Charteris that he will not discuss with Whitlam matters relating to the blocking of supply. Now, that's untenable. How could he possibly say he was not going to discuss these matters with the Prime Minister, the most critical constitutional crisis we were perhaps about to see, certainly at that time of critical political crisis? Uh, It's just untenable. He should not have held that position once he had gone down that path. Even his very first letter to to Charters is filled with antagonism towards the government that has just appointed him. So Kerr's letters reveal a man that is terrifically insecure, desperate for the flattery of of the monarch and the monarchy through Sir Martin Charters, embarrassingly so. Um, Malcolm Turnbull wrote the terrific forward to this book. It was terrific. It is terrific. Yeah, I couldn't be more pleased with it, Cheryl. I felt that he really added to the story, not just with his own terrific writing style, but Mm. that he also brings in his own experience as Prime Minister and comments on on his relations with the Governor-General. And I thought it was was, was a terrific uh, uh, forward. But but it is, as as he said, (laughs) uh, uh, Kerr's letters are stomach churning and and they are in the sense that we're witnessing a man who so desperately wants the approbation of of Buckingham Palace of the Queen of the monarchy and you, and, and it's almost like you're reading letters from a different era. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the last gasp of this sort of post-imperial connection and the difficulty for Australia and I think the Australian government is that Kerr saw his first and foremost duty to the palace to the Queen. He says this in one of his letters afterwards that he could not risk telling Whitlam and advising with them because that might bring the monarchy into our issue and he could not risk that for the sake of the monarchy. Now, these are extraordinary words. That's saying that the interest of the monarchy played more heavily on Sir John's, John Kerr's Than the people. Than the people. Australians. And, and his duty as Governor-General to the Australian Government. Yeah. So I, I find the letters, you know, replete with, um, with matters of great significance and great richness and it's significance for where we go as a nation. And so to see them by some people who I'd rather not name, but to see them by some commentators just dismissed as not relevant, I, I think is really worrying and disheartening and, and frankly, dishonest. Mm. Conservatives. Um, I'll just throw that in. <laughs> All right. So tell me about the battle to get these letters. And I really don't understand the motive of the National Archives. It was a battle, but I hope it's a thrilling battle. It's a Um, great battle. It was really important to me and many people have given me fantastic feedback on the sort of political thriller nature of it because I did want it to have that sense of a courtroom drama mixed with political thriller and an unfolding of archival material because to me it is a fascinating story. And the battle was that the, uh, the letters were in the archives. They'd been in our archives in Canberra all this time, you know, for 40 years or so. 
And yet the reason we couldn't see them was because the Queen, the Queen of England, well, she would say I was Queen of Australia in that in that guy's embargo, the letters. It was the Queen who was refusing us access to the letters. Now, the archives' view was that they accepted what was claimed as the personal nature of the, of the letters. Can I just get a bit of background on the National Archives? So they're a government body. The National Archives is a government body. It's governed by legislation, and this is important because the legislation says that what are called Commonwealth records, must become available for public access after it was then 30 years, it's now reducing to 20. Now, the reason these letters didn't come under that Act and therefore hadn't been released is that the archives accepted what Government House and Buckingham Palace told them, which was that they're not official Commonwealth records, they are what's called personal records and they have their own terms of access. Now, Every single that person. I find outrageous. Exactly, and I was about to say that they are both. I mean, how could his position have been personal? He was being paid by government, and that's exactly right. And and I think everybody who heard that description of personal uh, responded exactly as you have. How can they be personal when they one is the Queen of Australia, the other is the Governor General of Australia, and they are writing to each other? It was accepted in court. It was writing to each other in their official capacities. So. We had to argue that very point, Cheryl, in court, and fundamentally that's what we argued, that these are pers- not personal records, they are clearly Commonwealth records, and, you know, the legal argument uh, came down to very fine points of law, but, but at its heart it was that against an argument that there's a royal convention of secrecy around personal documents and various bases for the nature of the term personal. So do you think the pressure was coming from the Queen herself? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. The archives submitted uh, to the federal court a very detailed submission from Government House, and that included letters from what was then the current uh, uh, private secretary to the Queen, telling Government House very clearly that these were personal and were not to be opened and, you know, very, very politely interpreting our own Archives Act for us, which I thought was a bit rich given that that was the very question going up to our High Court. But nevertheless, Buckingham Palace told us that that our own Archives Act did not cover these letters, that they were indeed personal letters. And, look, I'm delighted that that our High Court not only overturned that but specifically mentioned the Queen's embargo and the Queen's wishes and said Australian law, that is our Archives Act, must prevail. Okay, so you're making it sound really simple. This was a five-year legal battle, wasn't it? Yes, <laughs> it was. But, I mean, what an extraordinary journey. Uh, I can't express too strongly how grateful I am to a remarkable legal team that was uh, able and willing and keen to work on a pro bono basis, and I must thank them, Anthony Whitlam QC, who took the lead barrister uh, at the uh, federal court, um, Brett Walker SC, who was the lead barrister at the appeal and then at the high court, Tom Brennan SC, who was a barrister throughout and was central to the case and instructed by Cause Chambers Westgarth. They were all magnificent. They all um, were so... Uh, driven by their view that these letters ought to be public and I think that's a wonderful public spiritedness and so I and I'm sure everybody thanked them most sincerely but that's that's where this began if it wasn't for the legal team uh, connecting with me because of the previous book the dismissal dossier and all of the evidence that was in that book we then went through this fascinating process which I detail in this book the palace letters of what had been a historical archival research journey feeding into a court case 
So, because you had two losses, didn't you? You had two monumental losses. Did you at any point think, well, this is over? I just can't get them. Oh, constantly. (laughs) It was a remarkable thing to juggle to to work through each of those because we did, as you say, lose at the federal court. Very disappointing, and it was a long struggle through the federal court. It was an extended one and a half day hearing. We then waited, so that took over almost a year for the second hearing to take place. We then waited eight months for the judge's decision and they, Justice Griffith found against us on almost every point. I was utterly devastated. I mean, it never occurred to me that we could appeal, of course, and yet they were, the lawyers were very, very strongly of the view that there were clear grounds for appeal. So we did appeal to the, to the, to the full federal court and we then had a 2-1 defeat where we had a wonderful dissenting judgment from Justice Flick which kept us going on to the High Court. But, but look, at each point I decided that I would take advice. I had to cover myself and the risk of any financial loss and that was a complicated process of trying to seek a, an early cost order from the court so that I wasn't liable to pay for the entire archives fee as they've since had to pay mine, which has been an enormous amount, you know, because they lost at the High Court. So I was juggling both that concern about my possible exposure to costs together with uh, the lawyers prepared to continue. Uh, I felt most reluctant to ever say to them, will you keep going? I waited until then, until they actually provided an opinion to me about the prospect of an appeal. And from that, we would then discuss the options Was it possible and realistic to appeal? And I'm so grateful for all of that process because apart from anything else, it was utterly fascinating. Mm, I can imagine. Okay, so I want just a a human response to when you first got your hands on these letters. Tell me me about the day. Tell me how that all rolled out. (laughs) Well, you might not want my answer, which is that I have been in lockdown in Melbourne for the last seven months. I have yet to put my hands on an actual original palace letter. What I have done, of course, is go through all of the copies of the letters, which have all been digitised. But when I describe the letters in the book, I've I've worked through a proxy, a wonderful researcher, Dr. Alison Kadzo, who I thank in the book, who has been the person in the archives going through the originals, because we're still not able to travel to Canberra. And uh, it, I will be able to report on that in the next day, in the next week when we can. So it's been an unusual very COVID-dominated experience of the release of the letters because we had the High Court hearing earlier this year and it was, again, a fascinating day and a half in the High Court. We were heard by the full bench. But in between that being heard, we were one of the last cases to be heard by the full bench in Canberra before they closed their doors because of COVID. COVID. And I was never able to, um, to get to Canberra to look at the letters once they were released. So they were emailed to you, copies were emailed? Yes, yes. They, the archives had an event, which I describe in the book, where uh, uh, they, they simultaneously released uh, digital copies available online. Their, their site then crashed within about 20 minutes. But because I, you know, I clearly needed to see the letters and was the applicant on the basis of which they were being well, I was released. going to say, did you get an email first? I, I, I did. I got a, um, right. well, not an email, a dedicated link so that my link would not crash when the public link crashed. And right. that was very important because obviously I, I had calls all day for me to comment on the letters. And, and, and I want to know what your response was, like your emotional response. For oh, it, it was pretty enormous, actually. It's interesting. I'd spent so long 
uh, seeking their release because the story actually begins a good five years before the court case when I first re requested access to them, and that was in 2011. So it had been a long um, effort to say, look, our history matters. We ought to be able to have these documents and know what happened about the dismissal. But to actually read them, my, my emotions were pretty high in the sense that these are just magnificent <laughs> historical documents. I was so thrilled at what we'd achieved because this is the first time anywhere in the Commonwealth nations that the Queen's wishes to close her correspondence has been overturned. Nowhere else are they able to see their letters with their prime ministers. The royal letters to governors in other former dominions are locked off to their people. The royal archives in London, which is a separate archive, you know, it's easier to get into the Royal Mint than that building. You cannot look at a single piece of royal documentation without royal approval. So we've been, I like to think, colonial upstarts here and have said, no, actually, our law is what carries and our law says we should be able to know what I, I know we spoke about this earlier, but it's ludicrous to think that, I mean, they're paid for and kept by public money, taxpayers' money, and they, they classify their business as private. Yes, and yet at the release of the letters, the archives proudly proclaimed themselves to be what they call a pro-disclosure organisation. And as I sat there at the end of a decade-long effort to get these open and thought, I was, I was absolutely thunderstruck by that comment. It has cost the National Archives $2 million to take this case, all to, to fight it as, as much as they have. They were fighting public access to his, critical historical records. So I frankly can't understand how they can hold their head up and say they're a pro-disclosure yeah. organisation under those circumstances. Mm. So you've obviously um, read them. Talk to me about some of the things that you're expecting or weren't expecting, surprises or no surprises, just an overview. Yeah, look, because of the case, I knew a great deal about the letters. A huge amount had actually come out during the court case, a lot of it really surprising to me. Mm -hmm. um, the first was the expectation and the acceptance by the archives of these letters do um, concern the powers and functions and duties of the Governor-General. In other words, they can't possibly be personal. Um, that surprised me, that acknowledgement. The number of letters is vast. Now, we didn't know that when we started the case. I had assumed that there might be at most perhaps 40 letters because Governors-General are meant to write back, you know, it's almost like writing to head office and giving mm. a dispatch once a year. There are over 200 letters. So, so we found that out about halfway through the case and I was absolutely shocked I, I i could this this alone suggests a very unusual relationship it's telling in itself isn't it, it is it yeah. is it absolutely is and not only 200 letters you know there's about 120 i think during uh, whitlam's term and another similar amount after because of course malcolm fraser then comes in but therefore the entirety of sir john kerr's period in office but together with that there are voluminous attachments kerr was just obsessive he sometimes wrote to the palace even three or four times a day certainly three or four times a week. He is grovelling, he is uh, deferential, he is seeking advice, he's um, undermining the government at every opportunity. That shocked me. I had no, no, no sense of that previously. But what is truly alarming, and many people, including Malcolm Turnbull, have pointed to as the impropriety of the letters, is that Sir Martin Chartres engages with Kerr in these deeply political matters. Because the overriding thing to keep in mind is that in a constitutional monarchy, the Queen, the constitutional monarch, must remain politically neutral at all times. 
That's why they continue to insist that they had no knowledge of this, even when the letters tell us that that's just a furphy. So the letters shatter, I think, that notion of political neutrality, certainly in relation to the clear moves that Kerr was making towards 1975. And one other thing that's very important is the letters confirm material I'd found elsewhere in Kerr's papers. There's a, and many of these materials actually went up to the Federal Court and then ultimately to the High Court as part of our evidence book. There's a journal that Kerr kept in 1980 in which he actually cites from several of his letters to the palace. That was important. And we now know that the palace knew from as early as September 1975 that Kerr was contemplating the removal of the government. And they also confirm the extracts which I'd found in Kerr's papers. There were extracts from about seven letters these are also reproduced in the palace letters. So we now know that that. So it's important to know they actually confirm other material in Kerr's, letter, in Kerr's papers because those papers overall add to the story. For example, there's a very important set of 14 points that Kerr writes, a handwritten note on key points on the dismissal, if you like. And number five, I think four or five of them, is Sir Martin Charteris's advice to me on dismissal. Now, we already know from that that he considered that he was getting advice from the Queen's private secretary on dismissal. So do we know if Martin Charteris was a rogue in himself or he was consulting with the Queen? Yes, it's an important question. No doubt he was consulting with the Queen and I think that's, um, that's just as it is. He is the private secretary. There's no other way of communicating with the Queen. This is a critical point. And particularly now that we know these are official Commonwealth records, you have to go through the private secretary. So the fact of Sir Martin Charles writing the letters is effectively the Queen writing the letters. Uh, his word is her word, and that's always taken to be the case. That's, that's the private secretary's central role, is to mm. be the point of contact in communication, the nexus with the monarch. But more than that, there are many, many references, probably in every, possibly every letter, some key points in every second or third letter otherwise, where Charters reassures Kerr that the Queen is reading every one of his letters in great detail, is very interested in this, is concerned about the comments he makes about whatever, and, 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 that, and that Charteris is in frequent contact with the Queen about the letters he is sending. For example, with that revelation about their knowledge in September 1975, that comes from a conversation Kerr has with Prince Charles in PNG in September 1975, where he tells Charles that he's concerned that Whitlam might move to remove him as Governor-General if Kerr is known to be considering removing him from office. Charles relays that back to Charteris uh, and back to the Queen. The critical point is that that has got back to the Queen because Charteris then writes to Kerr about that in one of the palace letters. So we do know that they operated as a block, the palace, the Queen, Prince Charles and Sir Martin Charteris. It's not possible to rope off any one of those, whether it's Prince Charles or Sir Martin Charters, and say, oh, but the palace didn't know. The palace doesn't do things loosely around these sorts of questions. They have very clear guidelines. I think your next um, interview should be with the Queen via Zoom. <laughs> I, would, I would be delighted. <laughs> Don't you think? <laughs> Just to get her, well, if she wants to be heard and she wants her point of view to be heard. Um, I think your statement after the letters came out reiterating what they've always said, which was that uh, neither the, the Queen nor the Royal Household had any part to play in the decision that Sir John Kerr made. Now, it is impossible to read the letters and argue that they had no role in his decision. Of course, every one of these letters fed into Kerr's decision. So I found it very interesting wording because it's, 
it's probably the one thing you would say from at its extreme from reading the letters is that, of course, these letters affected Kerr's decision. That's why he was writing about the matters he wrote about in them. And I want to ask you about Malcolm Fraser. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't find a way to get that into the conversation. Sorry, once you, once you ask me a question, Cheryl, I'll just keep going. <laughs> no, oh, I was absolutely intrigued. But do you think he's redeemed himself? He certainly tried to. And as far as I'm concerned, not over this particular matter, and he never resolved from it, and uh, he couldn't walk back from it. But I think it is an indication of how much in the longer term it damaged him. You know, I often say there were no winners in this, except Malcolm Fraser did win. You know, he became Prime Minister. He was in office, I would say, completely illegitimately initially anyway. Mm. And I think he carried a heavy burden for that, and yet he could never acknowledge that what he'd done was the wrong thing. Because as a Prime Minister, I felt that over the years, his sense of social justice became more defining, you know. Oh, it became more pronounced. That's right. I mean, if you compare him to somebody like John Howard. who Oh, completely. No, that's right. But it didn't change his view of 75. And he maintained to the end that, that he had to do what he did which I, I just could not accept or understand why he couldn't walk away from that. I think it was too big, too enormous yeah. for him to acknowledge error. But Whitlam said an interesting thing to me because I think, I, you know, we obviously would have discussed the fact that Fraser had appeared with Whitlam at a couple of things. Whitlam never forgave Kerr, never, um, and, and nor I can understand why he could not uh, because he deceived him. I don't think he knew the extent of what Fraser actually did because we now know that Kerr was in contact with Fraser prior to dismissing Whitlam and that's beyond improper. Mm. Fraser never acknowledged that um, at the time, but that's now well known and I've found documents indicating that. But Whitlam said to me, Malcolm has improved, Mm. which I thought was a very interesting comment. Yes, he's improved, but I got the feeling he thought there was still a long way to go. Mm. Oh, there's so much more I can talk to you about, Jenny, but we have run out of time. Uh, congratulations to you for coming this far. It's so important for our country. It's so important for history. Jenny Hocking, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for speaking to me, Cheryl. I've, I've enjoyed it very much. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, Join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.